So if you've been listening to the podcast or following me online for a little while, you've almost certainly heard me talk about the amazing book, How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety. This was the first book I chose to read with both my book clubs. So I've got the Socially Awkward Book Club on Patreon, and then I run a book club for a military family organization called the Healthy Mind Happy You Book Club. So we read it in both my book clubs. We loved it. This book has changed my life and it's changed the way I think about social anxiety. And I've heard the same kind of feedback from basically anyone who has read the book. The author of that book is Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, a clinical psychologist who helps millions calm their anxiety and be their authentic selves. She serves on the faculty at Boston University's Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. And as I already mentioned, she's the author of How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety. Her scientifically based zero judgment approach has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, BBC News, New York Magazine, The Guardian, Harvard Business Review, Scientific American, O, The Oprah Magazine, Real Simple, Business Insider, Psychology Today, Quiet Revolution, and many other media outlets. Dr. Hendrickson earned her PhD at UCLA and completed her training at Harvard Medical School. She lives in the Boston area with her family. And why did I just read you all that? Well, here's the super duper exciting, moderately well-kept secret I've been waiting weeks to share with you. Dr. Ellen Hendrickson is today's guest on the show. Ah, I know. I am way too excited for you to hear this interview. So we're just going to jump right in right now. Welcome to your social anxiety bestie, the show about showing up even when we're scared. I'm Sadie, and I'm here to share the truth about what it's like to live with social anxiety disorder. I was diagnosed with severe social anxiety and perfectionism in 2018, and since then I've been nerding out on all things anxiety and healing. My goal is to help you feel less alone and give you tips to face your own social fears wherever you are on your journey. I hope today's episode reminds you that even though social anxiety is lonely, you are not alone. Let's jump in. Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted you asked me and I'm so happy to talk to your audience. Yeah. Well, to say that I'm honored and excited to have you on the show doesn't even begin to cover it. My husband has truly been teasing me that it's adorably nerdy that I'm fangirling over a social anxiety researcher and psychologist. <laughs> But I stand, I stand by my fangirling, and I'm not going to try to pretend otherwise. I'm just so happy that you're open to chatting with me and my listeners today. Oh, absolutely. No, I've, I've been looking forward to this, and I'm just so happy to be here. I have a bunch of juicy social anxiety questions for you, and they're a mix of my own curiosities, plus questions that were submitted by my very insightful and wonderful book clubbers, book clubbers on Patreon. Um, so are you ready to dive in? Yes, let's do it. Okay, our first question is from Katinka. And she's asking about the anxiety response, like fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And she says, hi, Ellen. I had a question with regards to the anxiety response, the flight, the fight, flight, freeze, fawn responses, with fawning being very much a default response when communicating with others when you have social anxiety. So how do you start chipping away at this to make a genuine connection with others? 
Oh, I love this question. Yeah. So yes, 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 yes. So like, first, let me validate that absolutely that, you know, Kantika is not alone in this and that, you know, if we're walking into a situation, you know, be afraid of the reveal, afraid of some kind of feared outcome of judgment or rejection, it makes total sense to go into fawn mode. So, you know, I, her brain's trying to keep her safe, you know, again, totally validate, totally normalize. Okay. And at the same time, this is what's called a safety behavior. And so fawning uh, is the, okay, well, let me back up. So safety behavior is uh, an action or like a behavior we engage in that we think is going to keep us safe. Mm. We, we do something to try to artificially tamp down our anxiety. So in this case, being like overly friendly or fawning or giving like lots of compliments or like being super engaged and listening with like a big <laughs> smile on our face and our eyebrows like really high up above oh God, like, up to our hairline. Oh, totally. Yeah. I, I'm still trying to train myself <laughs> to lower my eyebrows. Um, but, but what happens is that these safety behaviors then get the credit for our feared outcome not happening. Mm. So what we want to do is not not to do a 180. We're not going to go from fawning to being a jerk or from <laughs> you know fawning, being, being overly friendly to being rude, but we do want to roll back being overly friendly to simply being friendly hmm. or being overly enthusiastic to simply being enthusiastic. And when we do that, we stick with our values. You know, we're not trying to be someone we're not, but at the same time, then we get the credit for our feared outcome not happening rather than the safety behavior of fawning. Right. I love that. And that makes so much sense. I hope Katinka, I hope that helps. All right. Our next question is from Sandy. We've actually got two from Sandy and her first one is about social anxiety disorder in young children. And she's wondering what role can early childhood educators play in helping to identify social anxiety in young children? And is there some kind of standard psychological screening that could help? And Sandy did give us some additional context for the question that I already shared with Alan. So that has informed her response that you're going to hear. Sure. So I'm, I was, uh, I was saying to Zadie that I'm going to do this kind of sociopathic <laughs> uh, polit political answer of, um, of that's, of, that's a great question. And given the context that Sandy talked about, this is her child mm -hmm. that she worked with. So I actually want to speak to parents and what parents of young children can do with all respect to Sandy's question. Mm -hmm. I think this will also be helpful to her and everyone else listening as well. Okay. So first, I, I do want to say that you don't need a formal diagnosis. Mm. You can rely on your own gut. You can rely on your genetics if you know that you have social anxiety or yep. your partner has social anxiety or there's another first degree relative who either is diagnosed or should be diagnosed, um, then you, know, you, can, you can just tell. And that's fine. I think that's, that's all you need. You don't, you don't need a, a diagnosis before you can start to help your child. Hmm. Okay, next, with early um, kid, kids in early childhood, the best thing to do is to do some age appropriate kind of, you know, wing spreading, you know, like, like let's, let's try this out activities 
with your child. So for example, if you want to demonstrate that it's okay to ask for help and nothing terrible happens if, if you ask for help, you can say, hey, let's both go ask the librarian mm. where this book is that you want. Or you could kind of plan ahead with your child at a restaurant and say, okay, is it okay with you? I'll get the attention of the waiter. Like I'll, I'll flag him down. And then I'll say, you know, you have a question and you can say, can I have a refill? And just like kind of setting up some uh, scenarios where they can experience some success and get the evidence and experience that the worst case scenario doesn't happen. People don't yell at them for having a question. People don't say, why did you drink your whole soda? You know, <laughs> that, that you can, they can get some experience as to how the world works. Uh, for you know, school, slightly older kids, like kind of early school age, um, or, or you know, actually older than that, you could also do a version of this. You could say, okay, well, let's, let's walk through how you might email or talk to your teacher saying you don't understand the assignment. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are lots, lots of ways that you can create some scaffolding around a feared experience. And, you know, let, let them experience it for themselves. Don't do it for them because then they don't, then they don't learn, then their brain doesn't get to go through that experience and gain that evidence. But you can absolutely provide some scaffolding and some guidance to uh, allow them to uh, refute those lies of social anxiety. Oh, I love that. I remember the part about scaffolding in your book, actually, and we talked about it in, in at least one of the book clubs. And yeah, I'm so happy to have this on record because I'm going to listen to it for my <laughs> son, for my son, at least um, as he gets older and just like providing those scaffolding exercises. I love that. Yeah. And some, sometimes, um, you know, and you can you can uh, kind of wing it um, based on the scaffolding as well. Like I, my one of my kids had a really hard time diving into um scenes that he found chaotic. Like uh, we made the mistake of, of showing up to a birthday party a little bit late one time and it was in full swing. And he was like, yeah, not, you know, his body language said not, not heading in there. Like that's not okay. And so we just sat on the sidelines for a little while and he sat on my lap and he just watched and like, he was like a sponge. And I think it took like, you know, good 10, 15 minutes. And then after he kind of got the hang of like, okay, this is what's happening. This is how this is working. He got up and, you know, started participating. That said, if they never participate, you know, that's not tragic either. We were in a music class where kids were expected to like, you know, dance in a circle or like, you know, bang a tambourine and he wanted nothing to do with this. And so the whole 12 weeks of class or whatever it was, he sat on my lap and watched but then when we would get home, he would reenact everything that had happened. And so I knew he was getting something out of it. I knew he was in his way participating. Again, he was like a sponge and would, would just do it in his own way. And so I, at the time, I was a little bit stressed about it. I was like, oh my gosh, like this kid will not, you know, what, what, what is happening that he won't participate? But I, I realized that he was doing it on his own terms in his own way and that I could push him a little bit like at the birthday party, but I could also back off at the <laughs> same time and nothing tragic happens. So um, I think I think it's it's a balancing act of, of meeting them where they're at and setting up some age appropriate challenges for them. 
That is so good. I, I mean, I, I'll move on because I could talk about this forever, but with my <laughs> son, too. yeah, with my son, it's very much like the, the second scenario you described, like with Taekwondo class, for example. So that's really, really helpful. Thank you. Good. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, Sandy had another question that's a little bit more about you. So it's about writing How to Be Yourself, which is your book. What challenges did you face when you were writing and publishing your book? Did your inner critic rear its head? And if so, how did you reassure her? Oh, that's such a lovely question. So I appreciate Sandy actually, you know, taking that very empathetic uh, stance. And the answer is yes. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. I was really afraid of bad reviews. I had this movie in my head of um, somehow like reading a review online or reading a review um, and like just seeing that it was bad and I I could just feel like my stomach dropping and like a shot of adrenaline. So yes, absolutely. That, that movie in your head is the worst. Um, and I was also worried about being treated differently um, after kind of outing myself from like people in my friend circle or, you know, like parents at my kids' schools. Um, and so, yeah, I was worried about several things. And so the way I dealt with it was with the bad reviews, I got them. I got some bad reviews. Most of them are not, thankfully. Most of them are good. Um, but I survived. And I realized, you know, like no matter how hard you try, you really can't please everyone. I remember yeah. there was one review. It was like the package arrived on time and gave me three stars. I was like, are you serious? <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> and, and so I just, I think it, it gave me permission to have some wiggle room that like I could control the, the pieces of the pie that I could control, but there are just pieces of the pie that I can't control, no matter how hard I try. And those I can just be willing to experience and know that I'm going to survive. So that's one. And then the second thing is with, I was worried about being treated differently or just somehow being uh, judged for outing myself. And I, so I tried to turn the tables because when I, uh, I think as a reasonable person, hear about a, like a public figure or an author or someone in my social circle admitting struggles, I react generally with uh, you know, empathy or care, or it actually makes me like them more because yeah. then they come across as like human rather than superhuman or like relatable as opposed to unrelatable. And so um, I, I just reminded myself of that, like, okay, I think this will probably not blow up in your face. This will probably will have the opposite effect. And that is actually what happened. I, my, I was, I was telling Sadie uh, before with reviews that I, I would make my husband read them first. Just, <laughs> you know, I was like looking through them at, you know, through my fingers in front of my face, like at a horror movie. Um, but the ones that I, that the, the ones that I read that stick with me are the ones that say, thank God she's not handing this down from a mountaintop mm. or, you know, how wonderful that she's, on the same journey as us. And so I really, I really took that to heart and appreciate that. Yeah. That came through in your book, by the way. Um, oh, that's wonderful. To, to, the, to the point where I, when I was sharing with my book club that I'd be talking to you and how I was nervous, they were like, yeah, but she understands that. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so that's awesome. Thank yeah. you for, thank you for being willing to just be so candid about oh, your, your side of the writing experience. Totally. All right. The next one is about enduring or white knuckling your way through the workday. How can we manage anxiety at work to avoid being completely exhausted by the time we get home? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, so we know that in social, okay, that social anxiety is driven strongly by perfectionism. And perfectionism, by its very nature, tends to be all or nothing. Either we hit it out of the park or we failed. And so oftentimes folks with social anxiety will kind of uh, will deal with their anxiety in the same way. Either we'll avoid, you know, like we will say like, uh, maybe, you know, Bill can do that presentation or you know, like we'll fantasize about calling in sick on that day or we'll flip totally over to the other side and we'll become super approachers. Like we'll, we'll do the thing like 110%. And, oh my gosh, that's exhausting. Yeah. And so what we can do is um, kind of like I talked about in the first question is to roll back those safety behaviors. So for, um, so for the person who asked this question, I'd say like at work, how are you on? Like what means you're on? Are you like smiling like you know with gritted teeth throughout the day like are you super agreeable are you um over preparing for meetings um are you rehearsing your answers many many times um just as a quick side note folks with social anxiety at work most often worry about um being seen as incompetent mm. And, and then, so what we'll do is we'll be super competent and then the safety behaviors get the credit. So again, roll back too much preparation to just preparation, roll back. Well, I mean, this is one where you don't even have to roll back. You can probably get rid of it in terms of like trying to rehearse in one's head. Um, instead, uh, you know, just in a meeting, try to tune into the meeting and like focus on what is being said in the moment. This is the turn your attention inside out mm. skill. And so just as a quick tangent on that one, our attention is like a spotlight. So in a socially anxious moment, we turn it inward and we start to monitor how we're doing. And that never goes well. So, uh, so instead we wanna turn our attention outward to the task at hand, to the moment that we're in. And ironically, that actually frees up our bandwidth and allows us to be more flexible and respond you know, in the moment more naturally. And so I would say, to either try to roll back safe behaviors that are just exhausting and getting the credit to turn attention outward in a socially anxious moment, which I realize is easier said than done, but it's a skill. And so with practice, it can happen, I promise. Um, and then the last thing, I know I'm trying to cram in too much information. To this no, that's okay. <laughs> but I'll give you one more thing. Um, to think about the feared outcome. I've just in my clinical experience with folks who are anxious at work, the, the number one fear is that they'll be fired. And oftentimes they worry that people, they worry they'll be fired for making a mistake. But let's, let's dig into that. How often do people get fired for making one mistake? How often do people get blindsided by being fired? It happens, like it's mm -hmm. possible. I'm sure in the history of this world it's happened, but it's, that's not usually what's ha what happens. Usually our boss will, will give us some feedback or we'll get a performance review that says, you know, you could really work on this. Or um, we are, our mistake is pointed out and we're given a chance to fix it. So when, when we feel like we're walking this high wire of like, I cannot make a mistake, that, that of course is exhausting. And so if we think about what, but what actually would happen if I made a mistake, there's usually way more wiggle room than we're giving ourselves credit for. Rather than walking this tightrope, we're actually kind of strolling down a 
if not a freeway, at least a sidewalk. So, so those are, those are my rapid fire answers. I love it. I love it. That question. Yeah. Ellen knows that we have a lot of juicy questions to get through. So I appreciate it. No um, problem. Packing it in. Yeah. It's very funny hearing these answers because this is like in real time, what I am doing to manage my own anxiety leading up to this kind of interview. So it's just really funny to hear. Oh, I've, I've been there. Don't, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> validate, so I, validate. I, I would say that like, the things in, in your book and the things you're saying, they really, really do work. Like Ellen said, like I have, I have done them and that, that's how I've gotten at least to the point where I'm at now and where I hope to keep going from here. So yes, practice, practice, practice. All right. The next one is from a book club member again, and her name is Asia. And uh, side note, she's a very big fan of your writing. Amazing. And it's about making friends. And she says, hi, Ellen, your book was the kickstart to my journey in self-exposure therapy for social anxiety. It truly is the reason I've made so much progress, but some days are harder than others, especially when trying to connect with others. How do you suggest someone with social anxiety make friends when their mind is telling them that they already don't fit in? And I often feel like I don't have anything valuable to say, so I don't say anything at all. Well, I am Asia's fan for <laughs> this question and for her, just, just what inspirational um, action she's taken. Mm -hmm. So that's awesome, good for her. Um, so yeah, I, I know this is, I, I feel like this is all validation all the time, but like, but, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but yes, of course, like so many of us walk around with this, uh, you know, cloud over our head of like, you don't fit in, you don't fit in, you know? Yeah. So, okay. I guess I would say a number of things. One is to radically accept that yes, some days will be harder than others. And that is okay. You're not going to push, 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 push a hundred percent every day. Mm -hmm. And like, sometimes it's okay just to, you know, go home and pull a blanket over your head that, you know, like it just, you win some, you lose some. So just give yourself some permission to, um, have it not go well some days that is okay. Okay. So that's one, two, um, when we are on this journey, I wish I could draw a graph for you, but because <laughs> I love graphs, but uh, we want our progress to skyrocket right away and then stay that way forever. Mm. Like we want it to, we want to fix it immediately and then have it be perfect for all time. And that's never what happens. And instead it's more of a slow and steady climb. And beyond that, it's this very roller coastery, slow and steady climb where there are peaks and valleys and peaks and valleys and peaks and yeah. valleys. And when you're in a valley, just trust that there will be a peak around the corner. If you, you know, keep on keeping on, you know, use your skills, you know, keep trying, like you will get there. And I, as long as over the course of, you know, months and years, you're moving in the direction you want to, that is sufficient. It doesn't have to be a win every day. So just, it's okay to have those peaks and valleys. Okay. And then, so those are all kind of the acceptance bucket things, but like, let's do a change bucket thing. So, okay. If we walk into a situation with our inner critic yelling at us, you don't fit in, we're going to act like we don't fit in. And we're going to broadcast that to everyone around us. We'll probably, um, you know, kind of subtly turn our body away from the group or we'll not uh, speak when we want to. So I would say to put behavior first. 
how would Asia act if she knew she fit in? How would she act if she knew people liked her? And then test out those behaviors. And I get that that's hard. I totally, totally, totally get that. It feels fake. It feels wrong. It feels illegal. Um, <laughs> and to, to you know, give it a test drive. Like if, if, if she knew people would respond well, how would she lead? And to, to see what happens there. So, because if we, um, if we, if we put behavior first, often, you know, our confidence will catch up, our mood will catch up and we will, it's, it's counterintuitive, but we'll feel better by putting behavior first. Oh, I love that. Put behavior. You could apply that to so many areas of life, not even, not just social anxiety, like everything put behavior Absolutely. first. I love that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, that's one of the, the cornerstone treatments for, um, you know, mild to moderate depression is, you know, do the things you used to like to do, do the things that usually give you pleasure, even if they don't in the moment that kind of, you know, filling, it might, it feels like a drop in the bucket, but you know, mm. drop by drop, you can fill that bucket. And so, um, yeah, anyway, that's a tangent, but yeah, I love that tangent. <laughs> I like tangents. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm back. Okay. All right. All right. Here, okay, we go. here we go. Okay. Okay, post-lockdown fears. This question is not from a book clubber. Um, how can we deal with increased anxiety as things start opening up again? Okay, I lied. It is from a book clubber, but I, I don't know if I'm okay to use the person's name. Oh, okay. Name, yeah, so. no worries. Yeah, so, okay. So, first of all, this person is in an enormous boat because if, you know, if you've been looking at the news, every other article is about <laughs> exactly this. Um, and the, the APA... Uh, did a survey, their annual Stress in America survey found that 48% of vaccinated adults are anxious about getting back into um, normal, you know, I'll put that in quotes, social, social life. Hmm. So, um, so that, that, that takes out um, any fear of the virus. So like that's, that's a vaccinated people. So it's, right. it, there's uh, the take home is that so many people are anxious after a year of, you know, rightfully so avoiding social life, getting back in there. So um, how can we deal with that? So one is, um, one of my kids, third grade teachers used a phrase that I really liked, and it was go slow to go fast. And she meant that, you know, take your time on the fundamentals, take your time on your math facts, like your multiplication tables, mm. or your, you know, just kind of basic things. And that solid foundation will allow you to move faster later when you get into like long division or, you know, whatever it is you're doing. So we can take that same philosophy and use it for re-emerging into the new normal. So to, to take your time at the beginning and to, um, it, it's, it's okay to go slowly at the beginning. You could, you know, get together with one person in your backyard or an outdoor cafe, or um, otherwise you take your time to, to get comfortable with some of the basics and that will allow you more quickly to go back to the bigger things like a wedding reception or getting on a plane or um, other things that might be, uh, that we might feel pressured to do right away but it's okay to, you know, take your time at first. Um, and that, so to pivot off of that, there are also 
so many points of re-entry. Like re-entry is not one thing. It's not like, okay, today I'm in pandemic mode and tomorrow I'm back to my normal social life. There are so many points. There's the first time back at a restaurant. There's the first time back on public transportation. There's the first time sharing a car with somebody. There's the first you know, time um, getting together in a group outside or inside. So it, and, and our brains will recalibrate as we go through these dozens of points of re-entry. So you can start slow, you know, go slow to go fast and work your way up through those many, many points. And that should uh, kind of chip away at the anxiety as we go. Points of re-entry. I really like that. I'm going to think about it like that. Yeah, I was, I took a ride share the other day and it was my first time in, you know, more than a year. And I was, I was, you know, standing on the sidewalk and was like, Ooh, I, I feel a little jittery. What? Oh, this is interesting. You know, I had a mask on, I'm fully vaccinated, but I was like, still like, I don't know about this. Um, and just during the ride, it was, it was so funny just to see, I could, I could just sense, you know, my anxiety, like sinking, like slowly dissipating. Mm. Um, yeah, it was just a, such an interesting experience. So yeah, I'm ready to move on to other things. The next yeah. point. The next point, exactly. <laughs> All right, the next question is sort of like one of my pet favorite questions. And it's about the terminology we use. Um, so how does social anxiety differ from or overlap with capital S social anxiety disorder, shyness and introversion? I know yeah. that's like a big question, but no, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, these are all um, different things. So, okay, so lowercase s social anxiety is essentially the same as shyness. Like, mm. shy being shy is just the colloquial way of saying socially anxious. So, those are basically the same thing. Okay. And if if we want to get into like epidemiology, um, if we ask around we discovered that about 40% of people uh, identify as shy. Uh, but your, your uh, listener or your book club member asked about capital S social anxiety disorder. Okay, so there, that, that's about 12%, no wait, no, I misspoke, sorry. 13% of people in the US, I think it's 12% um, in the UK, um, will be able to meet criteria for that capital S mm. diagnosable social anxiety disorder at some point in life. And basically what that means is that we experience either distress or impairment. So either we suffer like disproportionately, you know, like everybody feels anxious before a first date or before a job interview. But if we feel that level of anxiety before, you know, headed, heading to a, I don't know, like a new yoga class, you know, mm. non-pandemic related, then, you know, that's, that's, that's some, we're, we're in distress. And then um, impairment is if social anxiety gets in the way of living our life. So my classic example, which I've used a billion times, but it bears repeating because I think it's, it, it illustrates it well, is um, like if a student is unable to raise their hand in class and therefore just deliberately decides like, okay, I'm just going to forego 20% of my grade. That mm. is class participation. I'm just not going to get those 20 points. Or if, um, if we pass up a present, uh, pass up a promotion because it would require us to give presentations like that, then, then it mm. starts to get in the way of our life. So that's impairment. Um, then introversion is a totally different animal. 
So introversion is a personality type or trait. And that has more to do with stimulation and our tolerance for stimulation. So extroverts have a higher tolerance for stimulation and, and generally thrive off of uh, more activity or socializing. Introverts have a lower tolerance for stimulation and get kind of burned out more easily and need to recharge. That said, my big asterisk with this is that even the most introverted of introverts are still social animals. We all need love, community, and belonging. So, you know, no, no man is an island. And even the most extroverted of extroverts, you know, sometimes need to recharge. They need to, you know, everybody needs to rest. Everybody needs to take some time to reflect and recharge. So it's all in the continuum, but everybody needs love and everybody needs quiet as yeah. well. So, um, yeah. And so it is entirely possible. You know, we often think about, um, social anxiety and introversion as being interchangeable because, uh, I think probably it's, it's more likely to be a socially anxious introvert, mm. but one can absolutely be a socially anxious extrovert. And so my examples there are, you know, if you love parties, but you're afraid you're going to say something stupid, or mm -hmm. you really want to go out with your colleagues after work, but you're worried that they're just inviting you to be nice and they don't really want you there, or you'd love to perform on stage, but um, you think that the audience is just going to hate you, mm -hmm. then, um, then absolutely, it, it's possible to be and actually, you know, quite common to be a socially anxious extrovert. Yes, that socially anxious extrovert piece of your book just blew my mind and started making me question, like, because I am sort of like that, what you just described, where I would go on stage, but then, or seek out these extroverted social mm -hmm. opportunities, but then also be kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place of it's terrifying and it's distressing. So totally, mind -blowing. yeah. And I, I think, um, a lot of people who perform like either musicians or you know stage actors or stand-up comedians um, identify with that because um, when those, those are all very structured roles you you know what you're doing there's certainty mm. like these are the lines I'm supposed to say or this is the music I'm supposed to be performing and so that um, that certainty can help reduce anxiety we, we know we're doing the right thing and so, yeah, I think that's how we can square the, um, the seeming um, kind of incongruity of um, introversion or social anxiety with performance. So, yeah. Thank you so much. I of love course. that. All right. The next question is about narcissism. Um, and this is because I have seen comments like this online regarding people with social anxiety. So I'm hoping you can give us some reassurance um, as people with social anxiety. Um, who may have been told that we're just being narcissistic, egotistical, or self-centered? Yeah, so I'm really glad that you asked this question because uh, yeah, some of my clients have said the same thing. They say, you know, my my mother says like nobody's thinking about you, or like my friends say no one cares. Like stop yeah. making it about you. Yeah. Um, and I think there is a distinct difference between being self-centered and being self-conscious. Hmm. So self-centered, 
I think there the default is look at me. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas with self-consciousness, which is what social anxiety falls into, like we're trying to blend into the background. It's more of a don't look at me, you know? So, um, so I think that while it is confusing because there is this, um, focus sort of on the self, it's, it's fundamentally different that, you know, narcissism, you know, egoism is trying to, um, kind of elevate and highlight the self, whereas self-consciousness, um, you know, which again, which is linked with social anxiety is more of a trying to, trying to blend into the background, trying to almost erase ourselves. This, this uh-huh. don't look at me. So, so I, I can see why people are confused, but I think it's fundamentally really different. Yeah, that's a good way of explaining it. The the difference between everyone's looking at me and I like it versus mm, mm-hmm. everyone's looking at me and I don't like I, it. I don't like it. Yeah. Right. That's, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, that's some good food for thought. All right, the next question is about therapy. Um, what does social anxiety therapy look like and how might how might one decide if treatment or medication are necessary? Oh, how does the sausage get made? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I guess the, the first thing I'd say is that social anxiety therapy can look really different with different therapists. And so I will speak to, um, you know, somebody who works at a pretty hardcore cognitive behavioral, you know, anxiety treatment center. So, okay. okay. So with that, um, you're going to generally find yourself working um, in two areas. That's the cognitive and the behavioral. So with the cognitive, you know, uh, that is focused on your thoughts. So your thoughts are how you talk to yourself, the you know words or phrases or pictures that go through your head, um, you know before, during, and after a socially anxious experience. And so there we can work to challenge the thoughts, like this has to go well, mm. or I have to be cool and entertaining and funny or everybody hates me, you know, so we can, we can challenge, we catch and challenge those thoughts. Then there's the behavioral and there, the heart of that is going to be, you know, what in the book is called the challenge list. Um, but what your therapist might call your, your exposure hierarchy or, you know, some other kind of jargony phrase. Yeah. Um, but essentially what that is, it's, it's just a list of, of your fears, the things that you know you're avoiding or that you would like to try or that are standing in your way and you rank them from easiest to hardest and kind of work your way through. Um, and that might sound terrifying. And so I want to clarify that your therapist will never make you do something that you're not ready for. They're never going to force you to do anything. And that your challenge list, every, every single item on there should be dignified. There is no mm-hmm. value in humiliating yourself or doing something that's not, um, yeah, that's just not dignified. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, so just keep, keep those things in mind. Um, so there's, the, so that's the cognitive and that's the behavioral. Uh, so from a slightly different lens, um, in my experience, I think the things that work best in social anxiety therapy are, you know, the challenge list, which you can also do on the fly. Like it doesn't have to be, you know, kind of like carved in a stone tablet and I <laughs> must do, you know, one through 10. Um, you know, you can do them on the fly. You can add stuff, you can delete stuff, but like the, the 
take home messages, go forth and do, like go, go do the things so that you can gather evidence and experience that the worst case scenario doesn't happen and that you can handle stuff. So that's one. The second um, kind of highest yield um, focus in therapy, I think is challenging perfectionism mm. and just not, okay. I think it's really important to not necessarily lower our high standards. I, I don't want to say to a client like who's been say polishing um, a report for hours and hours because they feel like it's not good enough. I don't want to say, yeah, just hand in a half-baked report. <laughs> that's, that's never going to happen. Plus I wouldn't want them to do that. So the high standards are not the problem. The problem is that the high standards are rigid and arbitrary. So by rigid, I mean that either we hit it out of the park or we strike out. Like there's nothing in between. And so to try to give ourselves some more flexibility around what is acceptable or, you know, um, how much um, other people can tolerate or just to, yeah, to allow ourselves some more wiggle room. Um, and when I say arbitrary in terms of those, those high standards, oftentimes we, we only apply that to us. Like we, like if, um, if we asked a colleague to write a report, we would probably tolerate a few typos or um, like a, a needing to ask us some questions or other um, other behaviors that we would never allow ourselves. Right. And so there we want to kind of double check and see like, okay, am I holding myself to a different standard than I would hold other people. And if so, to try to reduce that double standard and allow ourselves the same compassion and the same wiggle room that we would allow anybody else. So, so there, um, yeah. So the, again, to bring us back, the, the second most high yield thing is challenging perfectionism in all of those ways. Mm. And the, the third most high yield thing in my experience in social anxiety therapy is rolling back those safety behaviors. Like what's getting the credit for your feared outcome not happening and trying to drop that. So, so that's therapy, that's psychotherapy. Mm. Um, you had a part in the, whoever asked this question had a, had a question about medication as well. So I, I do wanna say there, do what works. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely take medication if you think that might be helpful to you. I'm not one of those psychologists like you should do it with, you should do it yourself like that. No, 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 no. Like use all the tools available to you. And once, um, if, if you choose to take medication, once you are on it, if it is working for you, don't be in a hurry to get off it. Don't mm -hmm. take the carburetor out of a working car. So yes. it's, it is okay. And uh, studies have actually shown that the one-two punch of therapy and medication is really the most effective and efficient way to, um, to fight any anxiety disorder. So, um, you know, it's absolutely, I will support people who decide not to take medication. I support people who do decide to make, take medication. You know, either choice is a hundred percent valid um, and do what works for you. I just, I mean, just very quickly, cause we've got a couple of questions, but I just want to back sure. up everything that Ellen said, because that is what therapy looked like for me. I started with CBT for social anxiety disorder. I did CBT for perfectionism after that with some talk therapy in the middle uh, and I take medication. And I've like, I have other episodes where I've talked about that. So I won't go into it, but I just want to say that like, yes, that is exactly what it looked like for me. And it was super, super helpful. A lot of work, but also life-changing. Yeah, no, I think um, 
it's, it's, it's interesting because people come to therapy because they want to change, mm -hmm. but then, then they are in therapy and they're like, oh my God, now I have to change. <laughs> I have oh, no. to actually change. I have to actually change, which can be, which can be you know, hard and terrifying. But yes. um, I, I, think I, I think I said this in the book, but I amuse myself. And so I'll say it again, is that a good, <laughs> a good therapist is like a good bra. They both yes. push and support you into the best shape possible. So, <laughs> so you know, your, your therapist will support you, but they're not gonna enable you. They're gonna push you. Yeah. And, but sometimes that is exactly, um, you know, what that, that combination of, of su support, understanding, validation, and trying to nudge us out of our comfort zone, not into the terror zone. We're not trying to make yeah. your, you know, hair stand on end or your <laughs> eyebrows singe off. We're not doing that, but, but to try out some things that we were afraid to try and to realize, oh, nothing horrible happened or, oh, I could actually do that can mm -hmm. be life-changing. Yes, my therapist uh, said like when when explaining the the challenge list or the exposure hierarchy, she said, for example, if your fear, if you had a dog fear, you wouldn't start by going into a room full of unleashed Great Danes or Rottweilers. <laughs> you could start with something much, much, much smaller than that, like yes. small dog on a leash at a distance, maybe and like absolutely get creative. But yeah, or even a picture of a dog. Yeah, yeah. Totally. All right, we've got two more questions. The next one's about uh, the package deal of social anxiety. So can you talk about the package deal of social anxiety that you talked about in your book with all the positive qualities that are found in people who experience social anxiety disorder? And then sort of an attached question is, is this because social anxiety disorder tends to affect certain personality types more than others? Like why, why do we have this package deal and what is it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, this, this was, um, I, I was, I made sure that this should be right in front mm -hmm. in the book, like first few pages, because I think we often think about social anxiety as a net negative, but we forget that it comes, you know, bundled with a lot of really good things. So, um, you know, the, the, some of them are, you know, that we think carefully, uh, you know, we're, we, we consider things deeply. Um, we can be highly empathetic. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes we're what's called pro-social, uh, meaning that like we're helpful or we're positive or we're altruistic. Um, you know, we hold high standards. Sometimes that, sometimes those standards can get a little rigid <laughs> and arbitrary, but we hold high standards, which is, you know, uniformly a good thing. Um, we are often, you know, respectful of other cultures, other backgrounds. Uh, I think that goes along with the empathy. And so there are just so many positive qualities uh, in people who experience social anxiety. I, I love working with people with social anxiety because everybody's so nice. Everybody's <laughs> so lovely. Um, it's, oh, it's bad. It's just, I don't know. I, I feel lucky to uh, like, to have people with social anxiety as my people. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, 100%. Um, okay, and then the second part of the question is does this affect certain personality types more than others? So probably, I think, that might be beyond the bleeding edge of science, but um, my informed gut says that most of the package deal stems from conscientiousness, mm. which is a, um, is, a, is a personality trait. It's one of the, the big five of the personality uh, traits. Um, and essentially it means that we are careful and diligent and dutiful and thorough. Um, and according to Angela Duckworth, who is the kind of grit research guru, uh, she came out with this lovely paper 
that found that conscientiousness is the kind of biggest um, contributor to both objective and subjective success in life. Hmm. So conscientiousness is a fantastic thing that gives rise to many wonderful qualities. And sometimes it can be set a little too high. And that's where perfectionism comes from. That's where, you know, kind of overdoing it comes from. And so um, if we can roll that back from being, again, kind of overly conscientious to being simply conscientious, <laughs> we can reap all the benefits of these, this, you know, fantastic package deal of social anxiety without it getting in our way so much. I love that. Conscientiousness. I need to learn more about conscientiousness. Our last question is from a book clubber named Lauren, and it's a beautiful question about just about having hope. So it's her statement, then I have a question to follow up. All right, this isn't a question, but I had a light bulb moment when you said that you can change your social anxiety. The thought had never even occurred to me, even though I'm super into personal development. I was always shy and reserved as a child, and it definitely has morphed into anxiety as an adult. And I've done things to manage the anxiety. But the thought never occurred to me that I could learn to be myself to people outside my inner circle. So that's from Lauren. And so I'm going to spin it into a question. Can you really change your social anxiety and learn to be yourself outside your own inner circle? And is it truly possible to feel better and learn to be the self you are without fear, to quote your book? Oh, my gosh. So, so yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, exclamation point. So lots and lots of hope. Yes, there is lots of hope to grow and stretch and change and do the things you want to do and you know, feel more comfortable. And you don't have to change your personality. I think it that can be tempting to think mm -hmm. that we need to you know, do a complete reboot of who we are, but that's not true at all. And the world needs people who are conscientious, yes. and, you know, who care about others and, um, you know, have, have all those qualities um, from that package deal, like you know, careful thinkers, empathetic, helpful to others. We absolutely need more people like everyone listening to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this episode right now. Um, and at the same time, yes. Uh, if it's getting in your way, there is lots of hope to grow and stretch and change. Um, I think in the book, I use the analogy of a, a boat that's anchored and that, that, um, that anchor keeps us, you know, within a certain range that we can, you know, drift or, you know, I guess more actively, you, you know, move ourselves from, you know, one end of the range to the other. Um, and so there you, we can, you, we can move ourselves to, you know, closer to the more flexible end of our range or the more, I don't know, outgoing end of our range. We might never dance on the bar. We might never, you know, like uh, be a, you know, pro wrestling announcer, but <laughs> that's fine. You know, like, we, like there are other people who do that. And so I think we can be, um, I'll say this with a caveat, the, the best version of ourselves, you know, with some work and therapy or whatever we want to do, but also we don't have to be the best version of ourselves. We can just be ourselves. So, um, so both and so yes, lots of hope. And you don't need to change who you really are. And that's where the biggest hope comes from, I think. I think that's what people are hoping to hear. They don't even may not even realize that like, yeah, you can be who you are. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Every, you know, if we're if we're on the quieter side, every, every, you know, conversation needs someone who's a good listener. If we're, um, you know, more detail oriented, um, you know, every work team needs that person like we we are valuable 
and we don't have to change the things about us that we already are contributing. Yes, I love that. Thank you. Well, that was our last question. We got through all of them. Wow, super speed demons. <laughs> super nice. Speed. Oh, so thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, insights, and encouragement with us. I know that everyone who listens to this will take something away from it. And I'm just, I cannot believe I got to do this interview. Thank you. Oh, I, I enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much for uh, you know, reaching out. And this was just such a delight. Yes. Okay. Where can people learn more from you online? Sure. Oh my gosh. So I guess uh, oh, the, um, the, the treasure trove, I suppose, is, uh, <laughs> um, everything is on my website, which is ellenhendrickson.com. And there, um, there are links to the book. If, you know, um, if that is something you haven't seen yet, um, there are some free resources available for download. And as of a couple of weeks ago, there is a video course, um, you know, people learn in different ways. So um, if a book doesn't appeal, um, then, you know, if, if you learn better by video, there is a course there that covers the greatest hits of how to be yourself and include some more material that I've been fine tuning since the book came out. So there's, there's lots there and sign up for the email list while you're there and I will send you, you know, more tips and tools and reminders and all sorts of stuff, um, you know, every week-ish, every other week-ish. So um, on a regular basis though. So yeah, there, there I, we love, go. I love you. Yes, I'm, I'm on your email list and I signed up for like the, the myths of social anxiety was like a series of emails. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. I loved that one. And then awesome. you had an email yesterday about, oh, I can't remember. It was fun or something. Anyway, oh, why do we, why do we turn fun into a chore? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And I was like, oh God, I do that. So <laughs> as, as many of us do. Yeah. yeah. So sign up for Ellen's email list and where else can we find you online? Oh, so, oh gosh, other places, um, random assortment of places. Um, <laughs> if you're on Insight Timer, there is um, an audio course there. Ooh. I run a Psychology Today blog. Um, so yeah, but I think just, uh, and especially given the transition away from the pandemic to whatever the new normal of social life is gonna be, there's, um, there's a, I've, <laughs> a lot of reporters have come calling, so. Oh. Uh, so that's, that's been part of the, my own challenge list of, uh, yeah. you know, trying to wing it with reporters or trying to be, you know, give interviews on camera. So, you know, I'm, I'm on the same journey as you. Let me just say again. I love that. Uh, yeah. So I'm right, right there paddling your canoe with you. <laughs> and you're on Instagram too. I, I found oh you. yes. Hello. Yeah. Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you know where I am better than I do. <laughs> And girl. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, yes, yeah, so thank you so much again for taking the time to speak to me. It's been, it's been a true highlight of my podcasting and social anxiety journey. So I will never forget it. Oh, well, I'm your fan as well. So we make a good team. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Of course. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode and I hope you found it helpful. Anxiety thrives on avoidance and we can take back our power by just showing up like you did today. Remember that you are probably underestimating how strong and wonderful you are, and you're probably overestimating how perfect and put together other people are. So show up scared, show up imperfect, just show up. And while you're at it, come find me on Instagram at your social anxiety bestie so we can be awkward together. <laughs>